Thanks again, ladies. And thank you, Cindy. While Mandarin is not my native tongue, it's the only other language I can speak a little bit of. So it was fun to hear that, hear you read that passage to us this morning. I could actually follow along. I wouldn't be able to read it like she did, but I could understand it a little bit. So we're back in Hebrews chapter 3 this week. And I want to start out by just making a little disclaimer here. I think that reality TV is, is fake. <laughs> I'm very cynical about it. Ever since a few scandals came out about how this show, oh, they found out this guy who's living in the wild really goes and sleeps in a hotel every night, and about how these people that are going to shop and buy their house have already bought the house that they're looking at. So I just now am very cynical of all of it. But that being said, have you heard of a singing competition called The Voice? I've never seen a full season of the show, but I've watched clips. People like to post clips of that show, different auditions that people have shared from time to time. And I I think it's like other shows. I think it's a lot more staged than they would have you believe. But if you aren't familiar with the format of the show, the first televised round of judging these um, singers who want to compete is done blind. So the judges are facing away from the stage, and the performer comes out, and sings, and so the judges can only hear. They don't take in the person's physique, how they're dressed, if they're male or female, what they look like, if they have any disabilities, things like that. All they do is hear their voice. And then if a particular judge wants that singer to be on their team, they push a button very dramatically, and their chair spins around, and they say, oh, look who it is, or whatever. I don't know. But remember how the Gospels tell us that John the Baptist, when he came, was like a voice crying in the wilderness, was a voice crying in the wilderness, saying, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist's mission was not about himself. It wasn't about his physical appearance. It was about the message that he had to give. It was about his voice. And remember, it had been prophesied that he would be born for a special purpose, to prepare the way of Jesus to come and bring salvation to his people. And many, we know, rejected his words, didn't they? Many refused to listen to his voice. When we read the book of Hebrews, I've been thinking about this lately, it's written by an unidentified author, and it's as though a voice is crying out to us as well. The voice of Hebrews often refers to the wilderness wanderings of the Jewish people, and it calls us to pay attention to their example. But the call that we hear from the book of Hebrews is not like John the Baptist's call to prepare the way, but to hold fast to the way of Jesus. It says, pay closer attention. Don't neglect this great salvation. Don't drift away. Consider Jesus. Don't harden your heart. Take care. When we get to Hebrews 4.12 next week, we'll look more deeply at the truth that God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. God's word is actively speaking to us today, calling out to us to believe. This word from God is still speaking to us right now. And in this book of Hebrews, we consider these many warnings that we have to keep our hearts from being hardened. Paying close attention to God's word, to his voice, keeps us from drifting away from the gospel that we've heard. It keeps us focused on living a simple life of faith in Christ alone, who is better than anyone or anything else. I love what D. Edmund Hebert, a New Testament scholar, 
wrote about the book of Hebrews in his commentary. It's kind of a long sentence, so I put it on a slide for you to follow along. He said, in these days, when there is a hesitancy to pay the price of an out-and-out identification with a rejected Christ, when there is a subtle or boldly open movement to ignore or even belittle the eternal Son of God, the epistle to the Hebrews cries out its stern warnings while it offers rousing encouragement and sweet comfort to the Lord's misunderstood and often oppressed saints. Hebrews cries out stern warnings, doesn't it? And in chapter 3, we are in a section of warnings. We have to recognize that these warnings are here because there is a very real danger of a rebellious attitude among those who would profess faith in Christ. And the proof of our faith is seen when we persevere in hope. So if you profess to know Jesus, but your life is one of sinful rebellion against him, you have to consider. This passage is here to make you stop and consider. Do not reject the voice of God as Israel did in the wilderness or like the Jewish leaders did in the time of Christ. These warnings are here for us today. So turn to chapter 3 in Hebrews if you haven't already. Last week, we considered our calling, our confession, and Christ himself, and our confident hope in him as ways to keep our hearts from being hardened. These considerations keep us soft-hearted. This week, we'll look at four more considerations that will help us to evaluate our hearts and to keep us from becoming hardened to sin. So first, this week, we'll look at considering the negative example of Israel's hardened hearts from verses 7 to 11. Then we are called to consider our own weakness in verse 12. And then to consider the mutual strength that we have in the body of Christ in verses 13 to 15. And then we'll consider the cause of a hardened heart so that we can avoid that in verses 16 to 19. So first of all, considering the negative example of Israel and their hard hearts. Verse 7 of this section begins with, therefore. And let me read it to you, verses 7 to 11. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the therefore in this section begins connecting verse 7 to 11 with the pericope that we looked at last week, verses 1 to 6. Remember that? Did you see that vocabulary word in there? The pericope that we looked at last week, where we considered Christ's faithfulness as a son compared to Moses' faithfulness as a servant. Now, in these verses, the author of Hebrews transitions away from Moses, the leader of Israel, to the people of Israel themselves. He goes back to what Scripture says in Psalm 95 and uses the example of the faithless Israelites led by Moses in order to challenge us not to make the same mistake they did, which led to hardened and rebellious hearts. Verse 7 goes on, Therefore, as the Spirit says, As you saw in your lesson this week, the author of Hebrews attributes the words of Psalm 95 not to any human author, but to the Holy Spirit. This is God's word to us. It's his voice calling out to us. God is communicating these things to us right now, and we do well to listen and pay attention. 
And here in chapter 3, God is saying, Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear the voice of God, then you had better listen to it, or you are becoming, you are in danger of becoming hard-hearted and rebellious. This is a warning from God to the Israelites and to all of us. Hardening one's heart, that refers to a heart that resists God, a heart of stone that prevents you from hearing and believing and responding in faith to God. When God spoke to the Israelites, they were to take in his words, to hear them, and then to go and do what he told them to do. But we see in verses 8 through 11 that the Israelites did not respond to God's word in this soft-hearted manner. They did not consider it or take it to heart, but instead they mistrusted it and cast it aside. They rebelled. Their hearts were as hard as stone. What had God told them that they didn't pay attention to? Exodus 3, 7 to 8 tells us that the Lord told Moses what was going to happen for the Israelites. Moses would have communicated this message to his people. Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. So here's what he's going to do. I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. He told them what he was going to do. He was going to bring them out of Egypt safely to the promised land and make of them a great nation. He also showed them that he was powerful to do this by preserving them, causing them to multiply and thrive as a people, even under captivity in the land of Egypt. He showed them by delivering them safely from Egypt and by drowning Pharaoh's pursuing army in the Red Sea. He gave them Moses to guide them and to proclaim his words to them. He led them on their journey by a pillar of fire in the night and a cloud in the day. These people had no reason whatsoever to question whether God was reliable to do what he said he would do. All they had to do was trust in his word and keep following him, keep obeying him. He had shown himself faithful. But what does the Holy Spirit say that they did instead? They hardened their hearts. They rebelled in the wilderness. They put God to the test. They went astray in their hearts, and they didn't know his ways. Instead of following him, they rebelled against him. Instead of trusting him, they tested him. And how did God respond to their lack of trust? Well, it's interesting to remember that at the rebellion at Meribah, where they complained about not having enough water, which is referred to here in, in Psalm 95, in our chapter of Hebrews 3, and also in Exodus 17, this, they questioned his goodness in leading them out of Egypt. They said, why did we not just die there where we were? We would have been better off. What did God do? He miraculously provided water for them out of a rock. He gave them the very thing that they were grumbling about. And later when they were hungry and complained about not having food, he gave them manna and quail from heaven. God tested them, tested their faith, and they failed. Instead of trusting, they complained and tested God, and yet God gave them what they were complaining for. That's pretty amazing. He didn't have to do that. And what's true is that he would have provided for them if they hadn't sinned. It wasn't their complaining that caused him to act on their behalf. He would have done that no matter what. So did his provision 
justify their grumbling and complaining attitudes? Not at all. But there was even more evidence for them that they could trust in God, that he cared about them, that he was faithful to them. But we see, however, that their attitude of grumbling against God and testing him was not just a passing phase. And his provision of water and so much more along the way did not convince them that he was faithful, that he was with them. This passage reminds us that they continued to rebel and harden their hearts and go astray from him, even as he brought them right to the brink of the promised land. You read this week in your lesson from Numbers 14 how they feared the giants in the land of Canaan and refused to go in and triumph as God had promised them that they would. This caused God to be provoked with them to righteous anger, and he swore in his wrath that they would not enter the promised land. Repeated sin and rebellion without true repentance showed that these Israelites lacked true faith. And for 40 more years, they kept whining and wandering through the desert until all of the people in that generation were dead. They spoke against the God who had rescued them time after time, revealing hearts that were hard and unconvinced of God's care for them. They had seen so much, but they failed to really consider how much God had done for them and who he was, that he was a good God, a holy God, and that he was a God who was not going to overlook their wickedness forever. Psalm 5, 4 through 5, David prays, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. The pattern of wickedness and iniquity in that first generation of Israelites wandering in the wilderness met with God's wrath and their exclusion from the promised land. But lest we look too harshly at the Israelites and forget about ourselves, let's look at the next point, that soft-hearted Christians are to use this example of the Israelites to consider their own weakness and frailty. There's a reason the author uses this example of the Israelites. It is here for us because we are made of the same stuff as the Israelites. Sinful flesh, sinful hearts, sinful minds. And so we need verse 12's encouragement, which says, See to it, or take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Like the Israelites, we are people of great privilege who claim deliverance from captivity, freedom from sin that once defined us and controlled our lives. God tests us as well. At times we lack something that we want or even need, and we're called to trust. How do you respond when your faith is tested in that way? Do you trust him or do you test him like the Israelites did? Let's be careful and not give in to the temptation to think that our God is indifferent to our sin. He loves us, yes. He is gracious and compassionate and patient with us, yes. But because of his perfect holiness, he actively opposes sin. We've already come across this truth in Hebrews 1.9 where it says of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And the command of warning in verse 12 is to take care, brethren. Take care because what the Israelites did in rebelling against God is something that we are prone to do as well. Christians need to take care of their spiritual lives because they recognize that they are weak like the people the Hebrews author is addressing. 
These Hebrews were tempted to go back to the practice of Judaism. They were tempted to leave Christ, even though they had heard the gospel. They'd been baptized. They'd taken communion together. They'd shared fellowship with one another. But all of these privileges didn't mean that they could just coast along or return to how they used to live before and be okay. The whole body of Christ needed to get up and take care that there would not develop in any one of them an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead them to fall away from the living God. This is a startling warning, and we have to consider it. Evil hearts that fall away from God, people who think they're believers, can really have within them a heart that is corrupt and rotten. Some of you perhaps are coasting or drifting along in your spiritual life. Maybe you're going through the motions of the Christian life, but you really don't have any true joy of the Lord in your, in your day, and you just come to church and EWG because it's just what you do. Well, take care that you are not passive about seeking the Lord, but instead diligently seek him every day and find ways to be serving him. Perhaps some of you are even being reckless, thinking that you can continue in patterns of sin and come out okay because you come to church or because you pray to prayer once upon a time. Take care that you're not deceiving yourself into thinking that you are safe in your sin. God graciously grants forgiveness to those who turn away from sin, who turn to him in humility and confession. We read another startling warning later in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 27, where it says that if we go on sinning willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. If you keep on sinning willfully, judgment will come, just like it did on the Israelites. Some of you may be hurting. You may be angry with people or even with God, questioning his goodness because of what he's allowed in your life. Take care that you don't run away from the one who came to live and plead for you and help you. You need to run closer to him because he is good and kind and compassionate, and he longs to help those who come to him by faith. So apathy, rebellion, doubt, and despair, how does this kind of sin creep into our lives? Well, it's just like what happened with the Israelites. They had a problem, right? They were thirsty, and they wanted water. They were hungry, and they didn't have any food. There were giants in the land they were supposed to conquer. They didn't have something that they needed or wanted, and instead of seeking the Lord and trusting in him and continuing to obey his commands— they gave in to fear and doubt, and they didn't even know if God was on their side anymore. We also see this process in the New Testament of how sin gains a foothold in our lives, detailed for us in the book of James. So James 1, 12 through 16, talks about how sin enters in and causes terrible destruction in our lives. First of all, though, verse 12 says that blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. These trials are like the one the Israelites faced in the wilderness, like the trials that we face every day. And it goes on to say, For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the trusting response. A trial comes, and you continue to believe God's promises, and you persevere in your faith. The trial doesn't shake your confidence one bit in God or in his promises. Verse 13 goes on to say, 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Just like the Israelites did, right? They said, where is God? Did he bring us out here into the wilderness to die? Why didn't he just leave us in Egypt where our life was good? Why is he doing this to us? Verse 13 continues, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. The Israelites were forgetting about the character of God. He is perfectly good. And instead, they were saying that somehow he had evil intent towards them. James goes on to explain where the real source of temptation lies in verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. In the case of the Israelites at Meribah, their desire for water was controlling them, carrying them away from God and into unbelief and rebellion. Verse 15 says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Just like Hebrews says, Take care, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And in verse 14, Exhort one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need this warning to not be deceived because sin is deceptive. It tries to trick us, just like reality TV. It's an age-old story. We crave something in our hearts, and often it's something good, maybe even something that we need, but we don't believe that God's word is enough for us. We don't believe that God is good, that he is really on our side. We accuse him of withholding something good that we deserve, and so we justify rebelling against him. We try to get what we want in our own way, thinking that when we get it, then we'll be really happy. But what this evil, unbelieving response actually brings is the opposite of happiness. Sin delivers death instead. So take a look at 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 12. In this passage, Paul also refers to the rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness when he says, now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example just like our passage in Hebrews is an example for us. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Take heed to the instruction of the example of the Israelites. It has been recorded here for you. Consider it and recognize how weak you are and how you need to pay attention Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10 goes on to say, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The word of God exhorts us to consider the example of the Israelites and to be humble, recognizing our neediness and looking for the way that he makes For us to get out of the temptation. Temptations to sin will come. And so we must be ready for them. Watchful for them. Because sin is deceptive. And it's also aggressive. As we know from 1 Peter 4.8. Which says that the devil is our adversary. Prowling around like a roaring lion. Looking for someone to devour. And the Lord himself warned Cain. Of sin's aggressive nature in Genesis 4. When he said... Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. If you are a child of God, 
He will make a way for you to escape temptation, but you must take care and recognize when you're in that danger, seeking the Lord for wisdom and looking for that way out that he provides. But these verses go on to confirm for us that this is not something that we have to do on our own. It says, take care, brethren, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This already implies that taking care is something we're doing together within the body of Christ. We're walking through these trials and temptations together, and verses 13 to 15 give more implicit instruction that we must consider the mutual strength that is found in the body of Christ. Verses 13 to 15 say, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. The command in verse 13 is clear. Encourage one another every day or day after day as long as it is still called today. That means today and tomorrow and the day after that. As long as we live, we need to be encouraging one another. And we need this help from one another because Even as believers, we are easily tricked. When someone is faced with sin's temptation, the best way to encourage them is to remind them of what is true and call them to act on it. Remind one another that following Jesus is always the better option. Any contrary ideas are tricks and deceptions. We have a vital role to play in the lives of one another to warn one another, to encourage one another, to stay away from sinful thinking and practices that can creep in if we're not careful. It's not fun to have to warn someone in this way, but it's so necessary. And this verse gives us the so that as well. Encourage one another, care for one another in this way, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Someone might think, I know the Bible says that I shouldn't lie on my tax forms, but the U.S. government is really overstepping their bounds this time. God will understand, and then I'll have more money to give to the church. (laughs) Someone could say, I know God says that I should submit to my husband as the church submits to Christ, but I don't think my husband is really loving me like the Bible says he's supposed to. So I'm just going to do what I think is best, and it'll be better for me and my kids in the end. Someone might think, I know I'm supposed to forgive others, but I've been hurt by way too many people. I'm just going to cut myself off from everyone so I don't have to keep going through all this trouble, and I can be safe from being hurt like that again. I know God says this, but it just doesn't apply to me for some reason. In this case, what he wants for me isn't really best for me. I know. I know what's better. Boy, if you hear things like that from me or see me being deceived by sin, I need you to warn me about it because sin is deceptive and sometimes it seems like it's the right way to think. But we have to be ready, don't we, to call one another to godly ways of thinking and living. And we need to be ready to receive that kind of call from others in our own lives. Reading your Bible listening to sermons, reading good books. These are all wonderful ways that we receive instruction and teaching. And we do well to pay attention to these sources. But this passage tells us that we also need to be personally in each other's lives, caring for each other, helping each other not to drift away from what we have heard. 
not to neglect our great salvation, not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And notice the frequency that we're supposed to be giving and receiving these encouragements. It's day after day, as long as it is still called today. Today, today, today. Notice how much this word is repeated in our passage. It's because there is an urgency to these things. We have to persevere because sin is relentless. And so our watchfulness over our own lives and our fellow believers' lives has to be relentless too. As I pointed out last week, these warnings are not just for the young Christian or for those who are immature in their faith. It's for all of us. We all need these warnings. Verse 14 tells us why. Because we are sharers in Christ if we hold fast to the hope that we had at first, firm until the end. God saves you in a moment. Each person is saved in a moment in time. You may not even know exactly when that moment was, but you once were dead in your sins and then you were alive in Christ. However, the assurance of our salvation is not based for ourselves from our perspective on that one moment in time. The assurance of the fact that you're a recipient of salvation comes as a result of seeing how God's grace plays out in your life over time, day by day, from the beginning of your life in Christ until the end of your life. The changes God started in you in that moment were real, and it happened, but they're borne out over time in your life as long as you live. As you grow in Christ, you become more sensitive to your sin. Your heart becomes more satisfied in the Lord. You love his word more fully. You love people more, and you show mercy more readily. The good work that God begins in you is carried out in you and completed in you by God as well. We talked about verse 14 a little bit last week. Remember that this if statement means that if someone has truly come to share in Christ, then it will be proven by the way they hold fast their original assurance of their faith firm until the end. Those who share in Christ will hold fast. So what does it mean that we have come to share in Christ or partake in Christ? To share in Christ means that what Christ did is ours in him. His righteous life is now ours. His death on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserved, was done on our behalf. His resurrection, where sin was conquered and he was raised to new life, that's ours. His merits are our merits. His inheritance is our inheritance. We share in him. Ephesians 3, 6 says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The promise in Christ is ours through the gospel because Jesus brought us to God as our great high priest. We are now his fellow heirs and family members. He is the son over God's house. He is our brother and we share in everything that belongs to him. And the flip side of that is true as well, if you want to call it a flip side. As we strive to follow Jesus, his suffering will also be ours to share. Because the world hated him, it will hate us. But even in this, we can rejoice, knowing that the outcome for those who suffer with Christ is that we will one day be glorified with him as well. Romans eight fifteen to 18 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if 
Indeed, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Trials will come to the Christian life. And just to be clear, trials are the things that happen to you that will push you out of your comfort zone, like illnesses, financial hardships, natural disasters, wars. Temptations will come to us as well, and temptations are the inducements or provocations to commit sin. Sometimes when we're in trials, we can be provoked to sin, and sometimes we're just going along our merry way, and a temptation comes in our path. But if we are those who share in Christ, then our faith will bear us up through even the hardest trial, even the fiercest temptation, not like those who heard his voice in the wilderness and disbelieved and disobeyed. We will suffer in the Christian life, but we can hold fast to our faith and we can keep on rejoicing that his promises to us are sure. And the suffering will all pale in comparison when we're united with Christ in glory. And so if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Consider the exhortation of this passage and exhort one another to not be deceived by sin and to not be deceived by sin yourself. We really need these warnings because the consequences of hardening our hearts are so severe. It cannot give you anything good to give into sin. It leads only to misery and to death. And so we need to recognize where this problem begins. What is the source of a hardened heart? Verses 16 to 19 challenge us to consider the cause of a hardened heart. Verse 16 says, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The author asks some questions here that he answers with other questions in verses 16 to 18. Who was it that rebelled and sinned? Wasn't it the privileged people of God led out of Egypt by Moses? Every one of them provoked God and they all died. Are these the ones who were never to enter the promised land? It's as if the author says, can you believe it? After all these people have, had seen and heard, after being led by Moses, they still didn't believe and they were cut off from their rest. Verse 19 says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. All the good things they had experienced from God, all that Moses could teach them and do, all that God showed them, it was not enough to bring them to their rest. And the process that led them to this shameful end in the wilderness as a people without a country, without a home, it all began with unbelief in their hearts. Unbelief started it all. It set them on their sad trajectory. And the outcome was that they were shut out of ever entering the promised land. Where else in scripture do you remember hearing about a really great place that people were shut out of? It's Adam and Eve, right? In the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, they disbelieved God and they listened instead to Satan who tricked them and they were shut out of the garden where they had walked and talked with God, where they were kept from ever going back there again. They experienced death and disease and pain and hardship all because they didn't believe the words that God had told them 
They went astray in their hearts. We must consider these kinds of examples and examine our own hearts. God sent his son Jesus to restore what Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden. Jesus died to bear the penalty of sin for all who believe in him. He rose again and he's seated in glory at God's right hand where he intercedes for us and where he ever lives to help us. And he's preparing a place right now for us to go and dwell with him forever. Those whose faith endures to the end will enter into that perfect place of peace and rest. If you don't yet believe in Christ, if you haven't come to faith, well, you've heard the gospel from God's word today. Humble yourself to consider it. Ask God to reveal himself to you through his word and make the promises of the gospel yours in Christ today. All of the world's remedies for your problems or ways to find happiness are just deceptive lies. Only Jesus can bring true joy and peace and purpose in this life and hope for the life to come. You were created by God for a purpose, to give him glory and to enjoy him forever. God recorded these warnings for us in his word for a reason. We need them. They're gracious warnings. They're here to give us the opportunity to take heed, to look at the warning signs and go away from death and destruction and instead go onto the path of life. And so today, if you hear his voice calling to you, take heed, consider these things and be saved from your sin. And if you're already a believer, I trust the words of Hebrews have stirred you up in your heart to excel still more in your own spiritual life. Christ accomplished the work of salvation for you by giving his life for you. How can you now disbelieve him and distrust him in your trials? The voice of Hebrews is crying out to you to consider these examples and to search your own heart for any traces of unbelief that could lead you to even temporary rebellion against the one who has delivered you from sin. And when trials come, sisters, don't let doubt creep in and don't test the Lord by disbelieving or challenging his promises. You can completely trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God over all of life's circumstances. Use the opportunity that trials bring to trust in him with all of your heart, to not lean on your own understanding, but to acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your paths. And when you're tempted to sin, be careful and consider the way out of temptation that God always provides. Look to your brothers and sisters in Christ for help. Hold fast to your faith. Today won't last forever. We never know when our todays will come to an end, but may we always consider Jesus, who is faithful as a son over God's house, who is better than Moses, and may we continue to listen to his voice and trust in his word completely, today and always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, you know each of us intimately. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, you're acquainted with all of our ways. Lord, I thank you that we trust in that sovereignty and your, your understanding of everything is so infinite and perfect. So we can trust that everything you bring into our lives is for a reason. It's to refine us. It's to give glory to your name. It's to teach us or to teach someone else something. So we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to know all of the answers, but that we do know who we believe and we do believe that you are able to keep us 
until the final day. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to pay the penalty for our sins and that we get to walk in newness of life. I pray that we would do that today, that we would encourage one another as your word commands. In Jesus' name, amen.